We need to um, come up with a way to... Do, do we need anything before the outro? Or what should we put here? Because we can't just like cut off the discussion and then start the intro script like last time. Uh, we need like a little game I know, or something. We need to do oh, hot like... takes. We didn't do hot takes. Oh, yeah. Okay, sweet. Yeah, my favorite part. Because I know what's going to happen. You guys don't know. So, okay. Um, we need like a little a hot take song. No, I got well, Pat can definitely write a hot take song. Could could we get one of the you some right. who's listening who knows how to do audio stuff? Send us your theme song for hot takes. <laughs> okay, hot takes, hot takes. Get them while they're hot. Hello, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Writers Group Book Club. We are a group of authors actively honing our craft while encouraging each other and our audience to just keep writing. We each have a project on the go, so we take turns reading each other's newest drafts and discussing them here. My name is Pat. I'm Jess. And I'm Lance. If you would like to read along, you can find some of our latest work posted on patreon.com slash wgbcpodcast. If you take the time to post your feedback on our subreddit, r slash WGBC podcast, we will take the time to read it and may even feature some of our favorites in the show, which we will get into right after this quick sponsored message. Buying a house has been a nightmare these last couple of years. With houses priced for bidding wars, social distance friendly 10 minute showings, and the expectations for unconditional offers at the very top of your budget, the last thing you want is a realtor that you can't trust or that just shows up and unlocks the door with no prep work. I've had a couple realtors in my house hunt that have kept me out of the market until a recent career change forced me to get back in. Foster Jackson is a realtor working out of the GTA, where he was born and raised. He's lived inside and out of the city, knows the market, and literally worked night and day to help my family find a house in a market that met our budget. He was transparent and professional, and never tried the old you better put in your best offer trick. I can honestly say, working with Foster, I have come to a deal that I have no buyer's remorse on, which has got to be rare here in June 2022. If you are looking to buy or rent in the greater Toronto area, give Foster a call and see what he can do for you. His contact info is in the episode description. I think that generally authors fall into one of two camps or on a spectrum along it. And that's between the discovery writers and the planners. And today I want to talk about planning versus discovery writing, uh, which I think sometimes ties in a little bit to being character driven and, or being plot driven. And I think I'd like to talk about my approach to this and how I've approached it in my, uh, in my last book and in the current book I'm writing. I, my, I wrote a book last year and I'm now starting the sequel, which is my first book on the podcast. I definitely write, I'm definitely plan a lot. When I had my last book, I, I had several different ideas. I feel like a book definitely needs to be at least like five ideas that come together. Like one idea isn't a whole book. So I had a lot of different ideas. I had character development ideas, I had plot ideas, and I had setting ideas. And then developing all these, I was, I, I was able to put them into this, into one story and then and then find points of conflict where different characters and different plots and different settings all would come to come against each other and cause friction points and conflict points. 
and not only between different characters, but between the characters and the setting and, uh, and other, and other kind of, and the plot and such. Uh, so I definitely find myself in the, in the, in the plot centric planning side pretty hard, but I was, I was writing, I found that I was discovery writing a lot more than I thought I was ended up making a lot of changing as changes, as I found cooler things to do while I was writing. So my approach to this was I just assumed that I had made the changes in the past already, wrote down the change in my, in my notebook, and then just kept writing. And that way I never went back. I never revised or anything. And that's going to be a big thing for me to do. Luckily I've saved them all in one place, but I'm going to have to go back and make all those changes. But fortunately there's not a lot since I did plan pretty extensively. So for me, when I wrote my book one, I, 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 before I even started writing, I, I found the absolute coolest climax scene that I could with the characters and plots and settings that I, that I had found that I come up with. And so then I came up with how my character arcs were going to lead there in cool, interesting ways and how my setting and plot were going to lead there as well. And there's a couple of challenges with this side. There's, there are downsides, but it really, I think it really worked for me. And now I'm doing the same thing with my book too. Uh, when I did finish book one, I didn't actually know what I was going to do with book two, but a couple, a few different uh, ideas that were really interesting to me came up. And with that, I was able to come up with a really great final scene that will completely close off the two-part series, I think in a very satisfying and uh, interesting and unexpected manner that will be really well foreshadowed and already is foreshadowed in book one. So that was one of the reasons that I wanted to write book two before I went to start editing book one, because I want to make sure that I could go back and sprinkle some of that foreshadowing into book one um, after having already found out what's going to happen in book two, because I know that will change as I discovery as I write a little bit, even though I'm planning, there's still some discovery happening. Uh, one thing I think is the downside of this is that it can feel like your characters are are simply following um, are following what the plot requires of them instead of making their own decisions like the human beings that they should be. And I've done my best, I think, to... I'm definitely something I'm, I'm working on and something that other discovery writers, I think, or other planning writers have, have uh, talked about. And I'm trying to make sure that my characters do seem organic and are organic. I think for me, this, this means coming up with character arcs ahead of time that are organic, that will lead the characters to organically make the decisions that I want them to make. Cause they don't actually get to make those decisions. I make those decisions cause it's a, it's a, it's a planned out and plot driven book. I just need to make sure it doesn't really look that way. Um, and I would say that it really took a, a it takes a long time to plan this out i can't just come up with cool characters a cool setting and then maybe uh one big conflict to start everything off and then and then keep going and then i can just they just write themselves i really had to plan everything out so it was a lot of like thinking about it in the shower thinking about it while i'm walking it's like it's like you know, I'm falling asleep at night and then I get this awesome idea. I got to like jump up, like run to the living room, wherever my notebook is and like jot down my idea in the notebook. Uh, and there's a lot of that going on, but it did allow me to come up with what I think is a, a story that, that has a, that has, that has really clear progress forward and backward progress that's throughout. So I've already decided what my major milestones are, how these are going to be not, not just progress but also setbacks and that's going to apply to to both the the plot like the character and and the characters themselves uh, and for me personally when i'm in books that in, in in i personally like books 
that have a huge cataclysmic ending where all of the different character and plot and setting arcs come together and get revealed in one gigantic place at once in really un in i would say the word would be in a surprising and inevitable way to to steal a quote from another author uh, in a surprising and inevitable way and and uh so that's what i really like in my books i've also found that i really like when my books have secrets of the distant past and when they have secret cabals so um in our in our pitch party episode you may have noticed that i think all of my stories had secret cabals and they all had secrets of the distant past and so my book features those heavily that's why there's flashbacks that's why there's tons of mystery and that's uh and that's just what i like and i hope that my book can achieve those things successfully what do you guys think i'm a uh, 100 percent uh put the cataclysmic ending at the start and then kind of bumble my way through that. I think I do it the opposite. So you write the ending first and then you kind of like make everything match up with it. No, the, like, like when you said uh, you come up with the setting and the characters and then just let them loose that I think I do it like that. Okay. I have an interesting idea and then I put it at the start and then I see what happens. So it's also like the plot idea for you, not necessarily like envisioning a character in your head. Um, yeah, I guess I come up with the setting and I don't know. I think I kind of am picking what I like, like my character traits. Yeah. And then I just give them a long leash. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I always feel like a story starts with a person for me. Like... um in the book I just did in Spellbound, the question for me was, what if there was a person born into a world full of chosen ones, but you're like not a chosen one? And what is the conflict extending from that? But the the problem with that is um, world building where you then build the world from like that person's perspective and you can run into trouble because then you need to have like proper lore built up and and that's difficult to do kind of on the fly because you change your mind a lot and make mistakes and and that's okay for a first draft but by the time you're going through your second draft like you really need to have that down and understand your world so that the reader can get it better and I think if you're a planner it's 100%. easier to do that for sure did you uh, do the same thing for this next one or are you planning to that's really interesting to ask. Like I pitched a plot idea. And so for me right now, um, I haven't written that much of it because as you guys know, I was on vacation for a few weeks. So I've kind of just let the idea sit in the bog of my mind and haven't really thought too much about it. I've, I've had some plot points, but like um, Lance said, I need to go back and really think about this project um I really liked the mention of walking because usually what I'll do is I'll put my music in and walk but yeah I have the idea for the plot but I need to know who and what it's going to revolve around who being the main character characters yeah when you mentioned that you or when you said um that you start with the character. I definitely start with the setting, I think. Because I'm just deciding if I did the same thing this time. And I de- definitely did. I kind of decided the world and 
the surrounding conflicts and then I'm just going to see where the characters go within that I think. It's such a tightrope walk because you want to make sure that your characters are ringing true because I think people like okay I'm thinking of the perfect marriage of these two ideas of the character and the plot and I think people love story where they're almost 50-50 great character great plot like um when I was on the plane back I rewatched two really great films I rewatched back to the future which everyone knows who Marty and Doc are and they're great characters and they're super flawed and they make a lot of mistakes However, I would say probably in terms of like an hour and a half filmmaking, one of the tightest, most mind-blowing, satisfying endings like out there that exists in film right now. Um, so I, I think that's like a good marriage of, of character and plot, um, but very, very hard to do skillfully. So like as writers, you know, you're constantly kind of honing that side of your craft. I absolutely agree. Um, I think that like I think the perfect book, I think a, a reader won't be able to tell. I think like, a, well, not necessarily the perfect book, but many good books, the reader wouldn't be able to tell if it was, um, if it was discovery written or, or planned, right? Like there should be a ending that, that brings together several different threats and they should resolve in cool and unexpected ways. And also the characters should be making decisions organically. It probably comes down to editing, right guys? Because because if you can, if you write your, if you discovery write, right, and then your characters are doing whatever, and then you're like, oh, actually, they're all kind of doing this one thing, and they're all really great characters following their own decisions, and they all do this one really cool thing at the end. All you have to, well, not all you have to do, I mean, this is a huge task, but you've got to go back in and put that foreshadowing in. And that's kind of the secret to a sweet plot is that you're, you have good progress and hopefully your interesting characters making their own decisions are giving you that progress. But you also have to foreshadow the crazy thing that's going to happen at the end. So I think that's the path for, for, totally. for discovery writers, right? Mm. What I love. Yeah. That totally tracks. I, I have to go back and add in like more depth to my characters. I think some of them, that's going to be what I need because I've got a couple kind of no one characters that don't really need to be there. Yeah, I think one of the best critiques you can give someone um, when you're reading their work is, I know this character, you've written this character now for like 50 pages, whatever, would that character really make yeah. that decision? And and if your reader is convinced that character would really make that choice based on everything you've done, then you are doing something right. And it's a Shouldn't good even have to think about to get. it. Yeah. Me and, me and, me and Pat had a, we had a, a talk a while ago, a long time ago about, uh, about writing a character driven story, which is something I would love to do maybe after this, but, and we were kind of thinking about like, what do like great, great, uh, discovery written books with great character books with great characters. Like what, what we, we picked one and we were like, what does this have? Like what's makes the character so good. And one thing we landed on was that, all that right away, you know what the characters, uh, like, you, you know, all the characters motivations. That's kind of a given for any good story. But what I think makes a character great, more so than just good, is not only do you have the motivation, but we identified that they also have an insecurity that causes that motivation. And that was a huge thing. We, when when we looked at the characters in in uh, in the Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones, that's what we landed. We were like, we were just going rattling off characters. We we're like, this character, oh, 
that's their insecurity, super obvious. This character, well, they do always do this because it's their motivation because of this insecurity and everything is, and then those insecurities like are done in the past. So the, the author did plan out at least the past enough to create these characters with huge insecurities that make sense. And I, I think that would be probably my starting point if I was doing a character-driven story, give them an insecurity. I tried to do that this time. I literally wrote out a spreadsheet and put like whatever my dozen characters that I need to have in there. And it. I feel like I'm just putting them in at random, first of all. And I was. But uh, it's really like a lot of work to go through and come up with and and go back like a lot of the game of thrones ones like a generation ago at least that has caused that insecurity like basically you're creating another story to justify a little bit your story that you're already trying to plan anyways yeah you are i found that was hard yeah but i think there's also room like because writing is such hard work i think there's there is room for you like especially in your first draft to have yes have your plan have your characters give them names give them an insecurity and a motivation and then just start writing and just see what starts happening because you do get to a certain point where like you know who your character is it's I and people talk about it like you know we're all not crazy here but you know your character starts asking for things or behaving in a certain way and starts ringing more true but it's something you this is why everyone's like write every day, write every day, write every day. Because like when you're trying to create consistency in a character and like really try to understand that character, you need to be working on it all the time. Um, but yeah, like I would, I would say also like don't plan so much that you lose some of that spontaneity that happens when you're writing every day and getting ideas every day and thinking Absolutely. about it every day, you know? Absolutely. And I would say that, you know, at least out of the three of us, for sure, I plan the most. Um, but I still had so much discovery, right? Like my, like my, when I, like my, I remember I went back and I saw like my, my layout for my original, the original layout for my book, which was like, I laid out 18 chapters with, I don't remember, like eight interludes and each of them had a point, right? And everything had a point. And like, when I went back, I actually think I followed exactly that or close to it to write the whole book. But those chapter descriptions were one, were not even one sentence. It was like three words. It was like, it was like, give crushing defeat to this character. And then like, I kind of arrive, I finished the chat before. I'm like, okay, I look up my master plan and I'm like, okay, like, where's my character at? How can I give him a huge crushing defeat? How can I make it really impactful for the audience? So like, of course, so then that's how I end up with, and then, and then that takes, and then I'm kind of doing micro planning. And then I, I start to make like my 20 bullet points for the chapter. And then while I'm writing it, Usually, to be honest, by like halfway through the bullet points, I stop looking at them. I don't even look at them anymore. And I'm just writing because I'm really like kind of in the zone and it's totally discovered. And then new things are coming up as I'm doing that because it's not in the plan, but it's really cool. And it's working for where we're in right now. And it might make a new character relationship or make, might make something new. But the spirit of what I need to get done, the core need, the purpose for that chapter, um, kind of fundamentally for me is to make the is for the reader to have a sense of progress and for the reader to have fun reading it, obviously. But to main point is to push towards having an awesome climax. Do you have chapters planned out, Jess? Or do you just... Um, so for this ancient Rome book, I have like major plot points planned out that I want to hit. Um, I'm a little bit intimidated, but I think 
I think it'll be okay, but no, like I don't plan out chapters in that way. Like for me personally, my writing process is allowing, I need to allow myself room to breathe um, or else I, I just feel too constrained and I won't do it. Um, like my really, my only rule is to do my best to hit those plot points and to write every day. And and that's all I can really have. And then the chapters tend to break themselves up like quite naturally. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm starting from with this one and it may work. It may not work because this one, I would say over my last book is extremely plot driven more than character driven. So it's going to be a challenge For for me to see how to, how to still make those characters come alive and allow them those moments um, while driving this like plot forward at a breakneck pace. So we'll see, we'll see how it's it going to be a big advantage that you know how to make good characters prior to planning your story. out. I just looked at the, the clock we should listen to and start talking Sounds about uh, seven one. Perfect. I'm excited. The book begins with a prologue. In the prologue, we travel back 800 years into the past and see two people with the ability to speak to each other through visions. They are each a mysterious person called the vision sibling who have powers that are not very well understood. Through their magical powers, they are able to speak to each other in real time across the world. And one is very worried about a huge conflict evolving on his side. And then his counterpart, the other vision sibling, she's not worried and she's aloof. And she's, uh, she thinks that it is not the vision sibling's job to meddle in the affairs of, of, of earth. He d- disagrees. And he thinks that we need to save the planet that he, he alludes to the rage lightning that the, the, that could get used to horrible effect if they don't step in the, uh, the distant and aloof vision sibling is not worried and she's not scared of people using the rage lightning. The local vision sibling disagrees, alludes to using a greater power than that even. Uh, and, uh, and she screams that it's their first commandment to not use the greater powers. And then she ends, she severs the connection and the vision ends. The first chapter of two moons book two is Savin is from Savin's perspective. After narrowly escaping death at the destruction of the rage lightning in the mountains, the three parties that were fighting each other as enemies have now come together in an uneasy alliance since the truth of, uh, of the secret cabal has emerged. The secret cabal has been working behind the scenes for decades and across countries to work against them for nefarious purposes. The three parties come together and there's immediately hostilities between them. The three parties are the parties of the Vigilan Empire, headed by Empress Sabin, the Biranji Resistance, headed by General Nadina Walat, and the Free People of Sossel, headed by Captain General Mastin. General Nadina urges them all to put their differences aside, and they do reluctantly. They begin to uncover and they begin to discuss uh, and identify the members of the Cabal. One, the Duchess Rina of Stossel City. Two, the greedy merchant Walat, Nadina's own father. And three, Empress Sabin's right-hand man, General Atikan Royi, all of whom have betrayed their people and, and betrayed them for greed and power. They identify a three-pronged plan to stop the cabal. 
they will have to, one, steal the Black Moonstone from the Duchess Rena of Stossel. They'll have to buy the Black Moonstone, the other Black Moonstone, from the greedy merchant Wallat. And finally, they will have to defeat General Atikan Royi in battle. All the while, the, the mysterious monk Jordan is very reluctant to give more information than, than necessary. But finally admits that the Black Moonstones are able to call upon the Rage Lightning to cause great destruction, to flatten continents, to sink mountains, to destroy entire countries. And that they must absolutely capture the Black Moonstones because with them, the evil Cabal can not only take, the, take over the world, but destroy anything in their path. All right, great. Um, Jess, do you want to go first or you want me to go first? What, what are you thinking? I can go first. Okay. Um, so, I'm uh, Lance, I'm not sure if you talked about this um, in your intro or not, but when uh, Lance sent out the email, he said, oh, I'm not sure about this, blah, blah, blah. And it's been a longstanding joke in our writers group that whenever someone says that, you just know it's going to be good. Um, and I was very happy to dive back into this story and to meet familiar characters that we haven't seen in like over six months now, I would say, right? Because you finished. Yeah. yeah a- around six months ago. Um, so I guess I'll just start off by saying that it was a very interesting prologue, which included um, clues about rituals that had taken place bef- before in the first book. But it was kind of the first time we like quote-unquote seen this ritual take place so I was very interested in reading about it and it um what I noted here is that it's a complex ritual explained well so I knew exactly what was happening the whole time and you also dropped some very interesting plot points and promises I would say which are going to be coming into fruition um I hope later in the book there's also the mention of mercy which I picked out in that first um in that first section because the title of your book has to do with mercy as well and the title might change but I was like interesting so it seems like perhaps in the last book there was like that period of peace um that was alluded to before like a great destruction so I think there's another promise somewhere in there as well um and I'm also really enjoying like the spirituality of the book and the spiritualism um, with the monks. And um, I don't want to necessarily call it magic, but it's just ringing very true to me. Like I can picture it all in my head quite well, um, how you're laying this out. So I just want to congratulate you on that. Um, I also thought it was a great introduction because one of my favorite characters in Lance's book is, um, an empress character and so she makes an appearance right away so I have a feeling that she is going to be a very important main character um and I felt pulled right in again like no time had passed and in fact I also felt that you did a great job reminding us of kind of the lay of the land and where things are going Um, right now um, there were some descriptions of the land around the area which was great Um, you talked about the location of rivers like someone was surveying and you're talking about the location of rivers and and important points 
kind of like you're setting up your chessboard, your proverbial chessboard, so to speak. So I I actually really appreciated that because it not that I'd forgotten that stuff, but it just like really jogged my memory. And so that was great. Um also, I think you're setting up the characters in a very interesting way because I have a feeling that how we're introduced to these characters, um, it's like that, it's like that Maya Angelou quote, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Um, so I think the characters are acting in ways in which they will continue to act throughout the book. And I say that because um, for the first time, for me at least, this character named Mastim comes off a lot more quote unquote crazed um, and a bit more like a zealot, which I'm finding interesting. So I'm wondering if he's going to be reaching a breaking point soon or if there's a certain promise that's happening there. Um, And then all the language you were using. So like I knew at once the black moonstones, what they were, what they could do. I had an idea of like what reliquaries are. And then I went back immediately to that, um, scene in this city you know which was being destroyed and like Jordan stuff so like I like completely got um what you were doing with all of that um and then again like um a great thing that Lance says all the time is you want to be you want your reader to figure out what you're going for like the sentence before it's revealed right is there a better way to say that I don't know but it's kind of like ideally like a paragraph before the huge reveal you want the person to like be like oh wait no i can't believe it you know yeah so i was kind of having those little moments throughout like for example like the mentioning of the three circles and then like i was like oh, three circle third a third moon and then it was like third moon i was like oh yeah see like i'm catching what you're throwing down here like very easily so that was making me feel good like i was like right in on on the conversation I also thought that providing context through conversation was a very nice touch um, because I have read fantasy books in the past where it feels like there's a lot of info dumping at the beginning, but because it was flowing through conversation, um, it didn't feel like that for me. I thought that was a clever thing to do. Um, You also take time to round out what all the goals are. And it turns out that one of the big goals is going to be this heist scene. So another big promise is brought forward through that. So I love the heist trope and I don't use trope Mm -hmm. in the term of it, um, something being overused or hackneyed. Like this is just a term in in literary circles that we use to describe um, a a theme or a, a typical thing that happens sometimes like to push the plot forward. So I love a good heist trope and I think, um, people are familiar with that and will be very interested to see how that plays out. Um, I also had an excellent sense of the stake. So the stake is like pretty much total world destruction, um, which is a big deal and people will want to prevent that. Um, Although who's that author? Uh, I think it is Brandon Sanderson who said that if we painted um, like if we had uh, an end of the world switch, on the corner of some building, like the paint wouldn't even be dry before someone pulled it. You know, people would be very- I can't wait to get him on the show. To, oh, I know. He's got a cabot. It's going to be great. Um, we quote him very often. And then I, I also like, uh, I just put General Jazka's back with big exclamation yeah. marks. So like, I'm just very excited to see where you take this and um, 
where it goes. I I'm not sure now who I could say who I would say the main character is in this book. Um, but I will say that you've written two very well-rounded, interesting female characters who are flawed and make mistakes, but thank are you. also badass. So I really com- thank you, thank you very much for that. Um, and I'm just really excited to see where it goes. Thank you. I, I want to jump in, Pat, before we get to you. Um, a couple of things that Jess said brought up stuff that was hard for me in this chapter or in these chapters. Um, one was uh, I was worried a lot that my characters were just talking and nothing happened which is true. But um, my on the other side, I'm kind of thinking, well, if you're reading this book, you probably you pr- almost certainly read book one, and you liked it. And then in that case, the talking is going to be interesting to you, because it's not just people talking, there's some conflict talk, right? Like, people are mad at each other and stuff like that. Um, and two, the other thing is, I think the sci-fi fear series foundation, I think that was Isaac Asimov, right? And I read the first book, Foundation, like not that long ago, maybe a year ago. And uh, it's really awesome. It's really plot driven. There's, If you like characters, I probably wouldn't bother reading it. But if you love plot, it's pretty good. And um, and it's really just, and the, the, the author said he wrote it, then he didn't touch it for 30 years. And then his publisher was like, can you give me a sequel to Foundation? So he went back, reread them for the first time in 30 years. And he's like, oh, there's no sci-fi guns and ships and stuff. It's just people talking. The whole thing was just people talking, but, but it's like, people love it. It's like really like big, it's really like, it's really interesting. So that kind of made me relax. Be like, okay, hold on. You can't have people talking and make it be interesting. And my whole book's not going to be people talking, but. Well, like, okay. Yes. I, I agree with that. Like, but I would rather have people talking about things they know about and like asking questions and kind of like allowing some of the characters to take the position of the reader being like, well, what does that mean? Instead of just the author providing this information. And I'm not going to shout out books on this podcast because first of all, all those people are published authors and I am not a formally published author unless you count digital app content um, publishing. But so I, I mean, like I can't really cast too many stones, but I have read fantasy books in the young adult space where the first chapter is truly just yeah. info dumping, info dumping, info dumping. And like it's I'm yeah. hanging on by a thread by like the the end of the first chapter. And so, yeah, like it's it's it keep it keeps it interesting because there are breaks there are flows, there are character motivation, like everyone's trying to get something out of those conversations. And so, yeah, I, I see where you're coming from, but that was my perspective and I liked it. One, and awesome. I find it One more comment about what you said is I'm a little worried. I think I, I maybe wrote Mastim differently than I wanted to. I think Mastim has, um, Mastim is really angry at the Empress. The Empress super duper betrayed him. And he's really mad about it. And she tried to kill him and all of his people while they were at their most vulnerable and weakened state. He doesn't care that she had a good reason. And that is true. So, and the thing is, you were like, oh, and like he's a bit of like a, a crazed zealot. And that's not, I see him as actually like being somewhat reasonable. But then I'm thinking, like, actually, wait, we're in Sabin's head right now. I don't know how many of, our, of, your, of our viewers are watch the NBA, but this guy is the size of Dwight Howard. He's seven foot tall and just pure muscle. Uh, and you know, he's been through a lot. And when he gets mad, he, he gets really mad. And we've seen in book one, how he goes from being a relatively nice understanding person to, to uh, authorizing the, 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 the execution of 10,000 people basically. Um, so we've seen that transition. So I think from Sabin's perspective, 
this is the guy that authorized the nuke, right? So she's like, yep, he's crazy. So I guess actually that really checks out. So I actually kind of, I like those comments. In retro, okay, I was like, good. wait, that's yeah. not what I want. I'm like, what would Sabin think? Obviously she would think that. So, okay. Uh, yeah, thank you. I have a different um, take on, on that, but uh, I'll get to that. Um, so, yeah, the uh, prologue, I thought that was a super neat interaction. It's kind of like um, like sort of a vulnerable state to see what are two, like, essentially gods. Like, they talk about mortals. I, I didn't, I don't think I... Um, Got, I don't think I got the impression last book that they were immortal. They're not. They're 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 mortals. I, maybe I wasn't clear about that. They're mortals. They're like, they're almost like, like um, like they're rep. They're they're kind of like, they're they're a bit like a Dalai Lama, where like they're born right. into this position, and there's like really noticeable magic powers that that are pretty powerful. But it's been a period of peace, so no one's seen in a while. Right. Maybe Anyways, I, I thought that was that. and and we're seeing them also through like this. It's like a obviously like a magical interaction that brings them together. But yeah, it was neat to see like them kind of trying to manipulate each other and arguing, um, in a very yeah like a vulnerable position for well one of them especially. Uh, and then we yeah we learn about or we hear the word ascending, which is a new magic that we haven't heard about in the previous book. Yeah. Um. Which seems to be some type of situation where they both have to kind of turn their keys together to to use it. But uh, I'm really glad that you said clues. that sense. That's what I'm looking for. That they both need to agree to do it. Yeah. Well, obviously, that uh, the one who is in trouble is trying to trying to get the other one to well save save that continent, which we know eventually gets destroyed, or probably imminently gets destroyed. It, it sounds like. Um, and then yeah, Sabin one. I don't think we've had a perspective Sabin chapter in the present. Is that right? We we only see her in the we past. We had very one. short ones, two very short ones in the battle, but not full chapters. Right, only at the very last chapter. Very short ones, yeah. So this is our first one, which is very interesting. She kind of um, you've given her the opportunity. She she's a little bit, I guess, humbled in the last war. And uh, she's kind of leaning back and letting Nadina kind of take the lead. But then she seizes her opportunity to kind of drive home the point and, and get everyone working together, which was really effective. She knows when she needs to take charge. Oh, yeah. And I, yeah, you're saying like um, there's a lots of little sprinkled in moments that uh, make it is a lot of information. But I, I think it comes across almost like a really well done previously on two moons. Like it, you need it. And especially if you're just picking up the second book, which I think you honestly could uh, with that introduction. Um, Because like situations are fluid. You don't necessarily have had to read up to that point to understand what the next step and you outline clearly what they need to do. So I think that was, yeah, very effective. And yeah, the moment I was talking about was when the, uh, the Puragi show up late. I'm like, of course they're going to be late to this. They, they've got no, uh, no respect for these foreign anyways. Um, and plus they were probably just slow. Uh, 
and then we got some good banter throughout there. Uh, Yurden looming around, making everyone uncomfortable. What was really good, or especially Savin. I guess it's Savin's perspective, so we get to see what she thinks of everyone. Um, there was one line I wrote down uh, that I really liked. Um, we under we underestimated the Biraji. They spend their lives fighting back the jungle. What is a Vija? What is a Vijadalani empire compared to the might of nature? I really like that. I thought that was really nice. Thank you. Um, and then, yeah, she's got another, she's got the other little zingers, like uh, no one more zealous than a new convert. I really like that. Um, yeah, so all in all, excellent recap. Um, I, like Jess said, I didn't forget anything, but it was nice to get it again and, and get the gang back together. Um, and I kind of tried to take a note of because you, you've uh, you spilled in a character trait for each of them and reminded us kind of who they are. So and obviously from Savin's perspective, but um, we get like Nadina mentions her past, just reminding us that that is like an ongoing conflict for her. Uh, we get to remember remind us that like because Savin doesn't instantly take charge. Like yeah, she's kind of in a humbled position, but then still is very effective and and seizes the opportunity to uh to do that nice um advantages speech that really like took everything home um and then yeah yurden just being a wild card and being like laser focused on on one task that uh you can you know turn him you couldn't put him on a different mission that's the only thing that he thinks that they should even be doing at all that's all yurden does single-minded Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, you remind us of that. Um, so I thought, so this is where I got to mast him. Yeah. He was being, he was a wild animal, but, uh, I think he, he was showing that he was kind of like embarrassed with himself and just like being all fussy and like acting out. And I I don't, and then he like, um, lets his captains kind of boss him around and, and he admits that he's in more of like a figurehead position than making any like day-to-day decisions um so i think yeah he's like a dog in a crate and uh and and he's yeah embarrassed with with how they got there um benoit speaking for his people being collected mysterious mermit and sathia you reminded us of them and obviously they're gonna have a big role now that uh mastim is a little bit um out of the driver's seat, uh, Calden. I, I maybe would have forgotten about Calden a bit, but uh, he brought him right back into the front. Um, yeah, so yeah, you set the stage. Gang's all there. I'm, I'm pumped. I think, uh, yeah, super good introduction. We got the band back together. The band is back <laughs> together. <laughs> all reluctant. It's a good like picking out your heist. Like it's the classic heist thing, right? You're, oh. you're picking out your your crew. I am no one such, wants to be part of it, but they know they have to. Such a sucker for that. Like, really, we should do, like, in the future. Anyway, I, I really do want to talk about sequels, though. And I think, Lance, you've set yourself up well for, like, a sequel because there was a big climax in the first book, but, like, you are you were still working up to this point, right? It's not like you just finished it and you were like, 
oh God, like, what do I do now? Like, how do I jump this shark? You know, like that is like really the only way to have a sequel is to like plan it in your first book. I see. Yeah. So mm-hmm. surprisingly, um, so when I, even when I finished two moons book one, I actually didn't know what was going to happen afterwards because I was like, this is an awesome ending. And it's like a huge climax that reveals everything and everything pays off. All the character arcs pay off. All the plot lines pay off and the setting pays off. And I was like, but really what happened is that you have three groups of and people of enemies who hate each other in one place. Yeah, they all survived. But what happens the next day? Right. And I was kind of like, I don't even know what to do. But I got saved because when I was going through, well, maybe like, maybe like a quarter or halfway through writing Two Moons, the first book, I was like, what if there was a sinister cabal that was like pulling the puppet strings behind the scenes? And I was kind of like, no, that's crazy, right? And then I was like, of course it's not crazy. So what I did was I wasn't sure. So I put all the foreshadowing in. And then I was like, if I don't want to use it, no one will notice anyways. And all the stuff, the book with the three circles on it. Um, there's a couple other references to a symbol of three circles. Um, then, uh, so yeah, I was, so I was, um, and then at the end of the book, I decided even at the end of, Tuma's book one, I was like, yeah, there's going to be a Sinister Cabal. And then if there's a book two, that'll be the plot. Um, and then I, I luckily was able to come up with some much cooler stuff even than I had originally planned. A lot cooler uh, for book two, which I think is uh, more satisfying. One thing I like to talk about for planning is when I'm, yeah, like when I'm writing a chapter, like I'll be like this plan, like it'll be like this chapter, like Benoy needs a crushing defeat. That'll be like all I have planned, right? In the, But I'll make it so that every chapter is kind of a self-contained story a little bit, right? Like, it's kind of like, we have our characters, we have an objective, we got to go get that objective. And then at the end of the chapter, like, either things go really well, but, oh no, we got something bad happened, now we're going to have to deal with that. Or things go really bad. And then they actually get worse. Like, I'm never, things are never like a static state. I'm always just trying to make things worse so that, and the only time that, that um so either like if the chapter is going well usually it means that there'll be a horrible defeat at the end and if the chapter is going poorly then it usually means they'll somehow like grasp victory out of the jaws of defeat you know okay that's actually so insightful because i was it's gotta be good for the reader it, right? it is just waiting for the climax it is and um we like will always say like i think this is why people love like superheroes so much because you love to see a um like person, you know, take take a few hits and then eventually win. Um, but this is why, and I don't know. Do you guys care about Marvel DC? Lance, do you care at all? I haven't. I I think I've seen like three superhero movies. Like Marvel versus DC, yes. or like this is why I will actually oh. always defend. Uh. No, I will always defend Spider Man over Batman. I don't care about Batman. Mm, I don't okay, care about I lost some. Yeah, he lost me anyway. Oh my god, come on! Like you really care about some sad millionaire in his back cave, like with all his expensive toys fighting crime. <laughs> I care about. Of course not. I. It's the villains in Batman that are no, the best. you know, the, in the, the villains Batman, in no Batman one cares. Are bad. He can hardly. He can't even move his head. But the <laughs> villains are great. 
The villains are always the big names. Okay, George Clooney. He, nobody remembers George Clooney's Batman. They oh my god, Dang I DeVito's do remember. Penguin, you know, I remember George Clooney's Batman. Never forget Mr. Freeze. That's not great. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, Mr. Freeze. Exactly. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, those are the good parts. But here's the reason I will defend Spider-Man because any win for Peter Parker is a loss for Spider-Man, and any win for Spider-Man is a loss for Peter Parker, and Ooh. that encapsulates a fantastic idea about what it means to be a character and how you keep that conflict going. Like um, Steve Ditko and um, Stan Lee, when they were writing um, the first comics, like way back in the sixties, he would eventually say like after 60 minutes of platitudes and posturing, um, the main idea behind Spider-Man was like, Spider-Man's like in the middle of the city and Dr. Octopus is like terrorizing people on in one corner and then aunt may needs life-saving life-saving medicine in the other and he has to make a decision and what do you do and so i think what um lance was saying about conflict and bad things happening like that's super insightful and and really important to driving your plot forward but i will always root for the guy that gets kicked 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 and then is better i, I don't care about batman i think that you're Sad boy in a cave. That's the start of a great rant. I'm saying I've had that rant inside me for so long, and no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> Pat disagrees. <laughs> I think this is great. I, I have no stake in this. So. I love the villains. I I think villains are great. But don't you find the but, Joker? Uh, I, that's very interesting. But don't you find the Joker like a little bit boring? Don't you find crazy for crazy's sake? a bit boring like it's hard to have motivation when you're like all i want to do is see the world burn it's like well you can only do that so many times and then it's just kind of like batman when heath ledger was who who was batman when heath ledger was uh christian bale oh yeah that's right shame on you for forgetting him and that voice a hundred times (laughs) (laughs) the voice is pretty funny but yeah no one cares about him joker is great i don't know I think the problem with superheroes sometimes is that the bad guys are usually proactive and doing stuff and the superheroes are reacting to them. Ooh, that's like interesting. Characters, don't we? Mm. That's why I think a lot of people like the Joker. They're like, oh yeah, Joker. You know, it's like how many people have Batman t-shirts versus like everyone who has a Joker t-shirt that you see. That is very interesting because don't we love characters that make decisions? Do shit. Yeah. yeah. There goes a queen rating. Yeah. It, it, I think if you have a character that's only reacting to things, it's a bit, um, it's a bit lazy. It's Nadina the first half of the no. book. No, <laughs> no, it's true. I did that on purpose. I did that on purpose. She 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 chooses to become proactive in the second half of the book. It's a big. And part then of you it. start liking her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, one one more thing I tried to do in my. Um, in my in this part was like that's i think of more of a character driven thing i'm trying to like learn to do a bit is having my 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 viewpoint character like how my viewpoint character thinks of other characters and refers to other characters like speaks both to her and the other person right so like muramat is is basically like a side character is doesn't really like actually do anything except like show to people and be be like kind of like a gross guy um 
and like she refers to him as like the disgusting peasant comma Muramat like every time she's like and like he like spits over the ledge and she's like that's vile behavior and it's like that's what she thinks because she's an empress and you don't just spit in front of her nobody does that ever so this is like the first time someone's just spat in front of her you know yeah i noticed Mm. that i noticed her referring to him as disgusting and it, it got a chuckle out of me also also Mastim, she says uh like she calls Mastim a monster at one point right yeah he, he i guess he is yeah this is guy that authorized the nuke he authorized the nuke that's how she sees it right like like everything sabin has done has like since her her earliest like like uh interlude chapter was her like eight, six years ago or whatever like discovering that this huge mythical weapon that can destroy continents is actually real and that she can maybe stop it. And she has to do everything to stop it from happening again. And then she's like, Oh, look, these people are the, actually the descendants of the people who nuked everyone last time, 800 years ago. She's like, huh, I should probably do something about that. So she goes and does. And then what does Mastim do? Kind of proves her right. Oh yeah, definitely. Right. So like, she's like, Hey, this is the guy that like, legit like authorized to nuke us and then jordan is the guy that provided the nuke so no wonder like 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 she's pretty apprehensive about them you're a mat she's not scared of she just thinks it's disgusting <laughs> and she likes sathya though because she thinks that she kind of she's a bit she's a bit they're a bit the same right we need to um come up with a way to do, do we need anything before the outro or what should we put here? Because we can't just like cut off the discussion and then start the intro script like last time. Uh, we need like a little game I know, or something. We need to do oh, hot like... takes. We didn't do hot takes. Oh, yeah. Okay, sweet. Yeah, my favorite part. Because I know what's going to happen. You guys don't know. So, okay. Um, we need like a little a hot take song. No, I got well, Pat can definitely write a hot take song. Could could we get one of the you some right. who's listening who knows how to do audio stuff send us your theme song for hot takes <laughs> okay hot takes hot takes get them while they're hot by the way pat likes takes so hot that they're like thrown straight into the sun hot take section will be like after so i'll have hand them in a, a section pat actually kind of knows what's going to happen in my story um but just doesn't so the hot take section is for them, especially Jess now, to just say off the top of her head what she thinks might happen. Her best guess or wildest guess or coolest guess of um, of what might happen. I will also throw in some uh, never before revealed secret to you guys. One of your hot takes um, has actually hugely impacted the plot of this book. A hot take that one of you said like a little. Do we get a writing ago. credit? Well, my my lawyer will be in touch with your lawyer. <laughs> oh, and Pat did fully guess. Pat fully guessed the huge reveal in a hot take segment, and then uh, amongst many other takes of his. And then I told, then uh, I got to tell you guys got to find out six months later. That's the risk of throwing out a million hot takes. You forget. Oh them. yeah. Yep. I got to keep track of them better. But the purpose of it is for for me to know if I'm on the right track. Because if you guys are giving me cool stuff that's similar to where I'm at, then like 
then then I know that I'm on the right track and I foreshadowed the right thing. I've, I've promised and progressed on the right yeah, things. Yeah, that is also true. All right, Jess. Um, I am a reader who is just bumbling her way through books sometimes. So I get quite surprised when things happen. However, I will give you some hot takes. Hot take number one. Nadina is going to sacrifice herself or do some very heroic act that will end up saving the world, but she dies in the process. Hot take number two. They find the second sibling. The second sibling is found. Scorching hot. And accurately (laughs) foreshadowed. Because you know, you know, there's two vision siblings. You know that they're genetic. Because Jordan says another one will be born to my people. I'll put. Um, I'll, I'll throw in the hot take. Uh, Benoit is going to murder Shannon to Whoa. to uh, avenge Nadina's honor. secret love story here well no I, I think there's a mutual respect i don't think it's love yeah they're 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 friends it's a it's a it is a serious um it's certainly a a, a hierarchical relationship like he like is 100 percent like let's like like he only is acting because she's inspired him to do so and she's the boss and he just does her actions and he's proven very ineffective as leadership as performance shown All right, hot take. That's it. Um, okay, I guess we can wrap it up, eh? Sounds good to me. Um, I'll go next. Uh, I'll try to get it done for Wednesday. I think I can do it. It might be a short one. That's okay. That's um, Absolutely. That's all we have for today. If you want to do the homework for next week's episode, you will be able to find some of our latest work posted on patreon.com slash podcast. We are also at WGBCP on Twitter. Thank you for listening. And remember to just keep writing. Oh, um, PSA about the ad space. Uh, Right now, we're just filling the ad space with uh, local entrepreneurs that that we think are doing a good job in our community. Um, Eventually, we came up with an idea that we could offer the ad space to listeners who want to promote their own projects. Um, and, uh, how that will look, we haven't come up with at this point, but, uh, stay tuned for that. We'll maybe in the next couple of weeks, we'll try to launch something for that. Jess, maybe you can launch, you, you can do the first one, promote some of your stuff. Yeah, we'll see. 50, 50 bucks a pop. Rant. I thought it was going to be like, I thought you were going to go like, 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 like into a full rage over sad boy. Why do cave. people like Batman? You know, the meme of the guy laughing, wiping or yes. crying, wiping his eyes with those dollar That bills. is Bruce. Ba- like, oh my God. I almost called him Bruce Banner. Don't put that in there. Bruce Wayne. Why were they even going to the movies? Like, why don't they have a private movie theater in their home? Like it did. It didn't make any sense to me.